It's Friday. That means it's time for a live Q&A call. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua, and I am your host, and today we have a live Q&A call. That means I open up the phone lines, got a couple callers hanging on the line right now. You ask any question that you want, and I do my best to come up with something useful to serve you and also share with eh, 20 or 30,000 people. So let's get to it. Access to these calls is restricted to patrons of the show. That allows me to uh, have enough, uh, few enough callers that I can handle. If you'd like to become a patron of the show and have access to these Q&A calls, I'd love for you to do that. You can do it at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. If you are in a place where you aren't able to or simply don't want to support the show financially, then make sure that you are involved in other aspects of the Radical Personal Finance community. For example, uh, just a moment ago, I just uh, put an invitation in a last-minute invitation in the Facebook uh, the Facebook group that we have for Radical Personal Finance. So we'll see who jumps in from there if they uh, happen to be hanging out on Facebook. I, you know, maybe I shouldn't penalize people like that because <laughs> we don't want people just living on Facebook and so that sends us to the wrong people. But every now and then I'll, I'll do an invitation like that and throw a last minute invitation to, uh, to invite callers from Facebook or from the email list, etc. So I do like to do that uh, to reward that. But the safest way to be notified about these calls is to join us as a patron. So you can do that at Radical Personal personalfinance.com slash patron. We're going to begin with Sean in Missouri. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joshua. I appreciate it. Go ahead and ask your question, please. Yes. So me and my wife, um, we're, we're currently trying to figure out a plan right now. Um, so we, we're carrying a lot of credit card debt. We bought a house about two years ago. It's proved to be a very fruitful investment for us. Um, and right now we've got a total of about 45000 in credit card debt that's kind of just been built up over the past few years. Um, so we're trying to come up with a plan to eliminate that debt as quickly as possible. Um, and so we've talked it over and we've kind of narrowed it down to a couple of different options. Um, so either pulling out a, maybe a home equity loan to reduce because the credit card interest rates are so high um, because they're 18 or 19%. Um, we could get a home equity loan of 6% to cover all of that and then aggressively pay that down. Um, or we were looking at the other options of possibly um, paying off one credit card like as quickly as possible. Um, so we're just, we're, we're just kind of lost um, just in the numbers of it right now. And so I was hoping maybe you could help us uh, figure out a plan for that. Um, so that way we can you know, get on our better path. How much is your household annual income? Total right now um, is about seventy-five. That's yeah, that's after tax. And before you bought the house, did you and your wife have credit card debt? Then we did. We had a little bit, um, maybe three or four thousand at the time. Um, so it's been about two years now that we've kind of built that up. 
So the credit card debt then primarily, as I'm understanding, is from improvements, repairs to the house. You put things, uh, construction materials at Home Depot, uh, you know, new paint, new curtains, new furniture, those types of expenses on the credit card. And that's what the debt is from. Is that right? Uh, no, not really. So it's more about 10 percent. Um, me and my wife are both also entrepreneurs. Um, and uh, so I've just recently started my own real estate business as an agent. Um, so part of it's that, and then hers is, I think about maybe 15 of that is hers. She's got a, a company. She's a makeup artist, uh, that she does, that she's working on building right now. Um, I'd say maybe about 15 of that is, is towards her, uh, her makeup artistry. Um, yeah. Okay. So then the house was just simply, you moved into the house. It's been a good decision. It's been a good house, but that's not what caused you to go into debt. What caused you to go into debt is that recently both you and she have begun new businesses and uh, the credit card debt is due to that. Is it due to business-related expenditures uh, such as purchasing signs, uh, outfitting a location to do makeup artists, buying tools, or is it due to covering personal income during a time of low, in, uh, during, of low income as you start the business? Yeah, so I would say it's about 50-50 in that regard, um, 50% towards the buying, purchasing, and then 50% towards covering expenses uh, due to low income. And at this point, do you feel like uh, – like are you continuing to add money to the credit card balances? Uh, no. I think we've hit – like probably over the past two months, we've we've hit a, a stopping point where we've hit, we were just like, okay, this is – we've gone too far. Um, and so we're, we're really trying to like relook at – what we spent and, and try and figure out the best way to, to eliminate this debt. Okay. All right. So this is uh, – the reason all these questions are important is it will guide the advice. Uh, for example, if the debt were related to your house, then that would be one thing. And you said it was a fruitful investment. So we tried to figure out, well, was this – did you buy an old house and needed to fix it up? That's not the case. Uh, if the debt were related to – overspending. Uh, let's say that you and she had stable incomes uh, and just over the years, you continually put extra expenses onto your credit card uh, balances. Then under those circumstances, that would lead in a different course of action. If it's related to low income and it's piled up a lot over the last couple of years and now it's just related to low income, the major question is, are the businesses working now? I'm hearing a yes. Uh is that right? No, not yet. Okay, so tell me more. Tell me about the stage of the business, uh, yours and hers both, uh, what the experience has been thus far and what you see coming down the line in the next six months. So experience thus far, uh, I'll speak for mine first um, as an agent. So I just recently, over the past month or two, became licensed uh, as, as an agent. And um, so I'm, I'm just really getting my foot in the door to get off the ground. Um, and then I have a second job that I'm working right now to – uh, provide additional income because it's stable income. Um, and I, I work that one full-time and then I'm doing full-time for my real estate business as well. So um, that's not producing a profit right now. It's, you know, putting money out for licenses and fees and everything else to get, get off the ground. Um, but over the next six months, I'm ideally, I'm, I'm hoping to be making all of that back and even more. Um, so projected income, I guess, would be uh, not including our initial 75 would be probably an additional 75 over the next six months. And the 75 um, is coming from your wife then currently? Uh, no. So the 75 is coming from me. 
And my wife is currently looking for uh, another job in addition to running her business right now, just to provide additional income. Okay. So let's, so in your real estate business, this is brand new. You haven't yet sold any property. So you have no net income from that business yet. You're working a side job, uh, which is paying you steady income. And how much is that paying you uh, on a weekly or monthly basis? So on a monthly after-tax basis, it's about $4,000. And is this a regular job? Yes, it's a nine-to-five. Okay, good. All right, great. So that gives us a great uh, a great place to start from. Now, your wife's business, is she earning any profit whatsoever in that business, in the uh, business yet on a regular basis? Uh, it's Yes, but it's minimal. It's, it's a couple hundred dollars right now. So she started hers a couple months ago, um, and so it's just – just turning over a couple hundred dollars a month right now. Okay. And you said she's now looking for another side job uh, to get stable income coming in as well? Yes. All right. How much, not including extra payments, how much are your monthly living expenses, including just the minimum payments on everything? So right around $4,000. So with your income at about $4,000, you can essentially tread water with your expenses, staying current on your debts at $4,000 a month. Is that right? Yeah, making no impact on the, on the credit. Or Understood. The debt. Yeah, the- Understood. And in the current scenario, are you current on all your payments? Yes. Okay. So this scenario here um, will kind of guide my advice. At the moment, what I hear is both of you are working to start – businesses, you a real estate business, her a makeup artist business, and it's slow going uh, as it is with most businesses. We're not sure if or when uh, it's going to go faster. We're hoping it is, but right now it's slow going. You may have been a little bit too optimistic about the rate of business growth, and that's what led to the credit card debt, um, kind of piling up uh, buying stuff uh, for the business, trying to get things going, and doing that on credit card debt and then covering your own personal expenses. In my experience, I have never found it to be a blessing for a new business owner to start a business on credit cards. I've never seen that be a good thing, especially when compared with alternative uses. Most businesses like you're describing to me, a business of a new real estate agent, a business of a makeup artist, most of these businesses can and should be started without any borrowing. Uh, There are many businesses and business owners who have begun with borrowing money and with credit card debt. So you can't say that it doesn't work. Certainly many people have done it. But it's my experience has been that if you borrow money, it causes you to be less fo- less focused on making the business produce cash flow and it causes you to spend unnecessary amounts of money. Because it's easier to spend borrowed money, uh, we wind up just simply swiping the card or entering it online and buying things that we think we might need until we prove that we actually do need them. And we find it easier to keep our expenses high uh, because we cover the difference with a credit card debt. Instead of saying no when there's an opportunity to uh, do something that's fun, maybe a weekend away or a week away or whatever the situation is, just as an example, we should say no, but we say, well, we're starting a new business. We need a little break. Let's go ahead and do it. We put it on the uh, put the personal expenses on the business credit on the credit card. So I've never seen that to be a blessing uh, for a business like yours. There are businesses that are much higher scale. 
that I don't know if they can ever be started without debt. Uh, some people, experienced business owners, they're going to launch a new venture. Uh, if you need millions of dollars of capital, you know that's different. Or some people need to buy major amounts of equipment. That's different. But in the business structure that you're describing to me, uh, or if any other listeners were going to start such a business, I would encourage you to never start such a business with credit card debt, but rather to work your way through and do it on the side as you are now doing. The reality is you could have worked over the last two years, a job and started your real estate business on the side. And your wife could have worked over the last two years, a job and started a makeup artist business on the side. And so accruing this debt wasn't strictly necessary. So now that we're there, not saying that to make you feel bad, just you got to learn the lesson. I've learned this the hard way myself. I've done it myself <laughs> and learned the lesson. <laughs> I had to pay it all off, <laughs> but uh, but learn the lesson from it and encourage others to avoid that. I've regretted it uh, when I've done that in the past. I have regretted it, and I wished that I had just simply worked my way through instead of you know taking the easy way out with credit card debt. So let's bring it to today and ignore the past because we are where we are today. What I would encourage you to do is not worry too much about paying off the credit card debt as quickly as possible in the sense of what are we going to do this month? What I would do is I would just fight like crazy to freeze it and stop accruing more. So if you are earning $4,000 a month at your job, what I would immediately do is stop spending on the credit cards for any reason whatsoever. Um, Probably best not to actually literally cut them up at this point because you're going to need to do some balance surfing over the next months and figure out what to do about possibly uh, changing the home, you know, about what to do with it, but at least, you know, lock them up away from you so you can't use them. If you have a discipline and willpower problem, you know, freeze them in the block of ice as as some people do. Uh, But I would, I would physically keep them present until you get them paid off. Uh, uh, but don't you got to figure out a way to 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 not use them. If you do have a willpower problem, shred the things and we'll figure out how to surf the balances later. But the reason I would say is kind of philosophically at this point you do have opportunity. And you have an opportunity for two new businesses. Sounds like you're still committed to growing these businesses. And that means that you have opportunity to build more revenue. So as long as we're not going deeper into the hole, let's make sure that we can keep these businesses going. And as you create more income from the businesses, it'd be great to be able to uh, uh, expand and it would be great to take that money and pay it off. So what I would do is I would commit myself to not borrowing more money and staying current on my stable salary job, but not expand personal expenses. Then look at your business and say, how can I make this business work? If you can start selling houses, well, in that case, you said you had um, 40 $45,000 of credit card debt. If your average commission uh, on your local area is, let's just say $4,500, ignoring taxes, that means you need to sell 10 houses. So that should give you a great amount of motivation to say, let me get some houses sold. Uh, or if your wife figures out what her average profit per client is or engagement, if well, however she's structuring her business, then that can give you uh, a major focus on on uh, on building those businesses and use the money from the business to pay extra on the debt uh, to get the debt cleared as quickly as possible. You may need at some time to retain the earnings in the business to expand. For example, you will face a situation in your real estate business where you're going to be quickly tapped out and you'll find it difficult to keep your full-time job and your, uh, and your, um, 
uh, keep your full-time job and to keep and, and to, to do your real estate business. So I don't know what the number of clients is where you'll get to the point where you're just exhausted, but you'll reach that point in time and you're going to have to face the, the challenge. Once you've sold some houses, am I going to keep my nine to five? Or should I go ahead and transition over to the business? And so you need to keep yourself the room of being able to make a decision to leave the nine to five. And that means retaining earnings in the business, keeping money there in the business. I don't know how to tell you tactically um, what to do from week to week, uh, but I would pursue both. I would try to work like crazy with the goal of having the debt paid off before I left my nine to five, Once, if I get the business going. Uh, and I would do that as long as I could, work long hours to, 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 to work it. But I would also keep the option. I'd try to keep some money liquid in case I came to the point where I said, you know what? Real estate is working. This is for me. I am going to go ahead and leave my job. And in that situation, you're going to need to have eight, ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 saved up to get you through two or three months while you ramp up the business with a full-time effort and a full-time endeavor. And knowing when and where the right place to make that transition is, is is impossible for, of course, for me to do that. Uh, but I would talk to some people around you and make sure that you are accurately assessing your productivity. Make sure that if you're putting in the time, you're putting in the work, great. Uh, you should pursue that with a goal towards transitioning to it full time. Uh, and you may not put as a requirement that you have to have the debt paid off before then, or you... Uh, you may say, no, I, I do want to get the debt paid off and then transition. So we'll talk a couple of tactics in a moment, but let me pause. Is that, is that, do you understand where I'm going and saying you've got opportunity here for the businesses? Make sure you give them time to grow and, and transition? Yeah, definitely. That, that does make sense. Okay. Tactically, uh, as far as answering the question about the HELOC versus not, are these credit cards at 18 to 19% interest rates currently? Yes. Why are the interest rates so high? Have you not tried to get 0% introductory offers and things like that? Uh, I have, and I think it's just because the balances are so high on them that I've been rejected for those. So I, I have tried that. Um, but I've, I have been rejected. So Okay. So the game, when you're in this situation, the game has a few different plays depending on how good your credit score is, et cetera. So here are a few things that you need to do. Number one, don't ever, ever, ever miss um, a minimum payment period. Because if you start missing payments, that has a dramatic effect on your credit score and it has a dramatic effect on your ability to get more, uh, to get more, um, uh, well, to get more uh, credit, yeah. And the biggest thing that's going to affect you at this point is the percentage of uh, balance that you have as compared to the available credit. So make sure that every one of your credit cards is set up with an automatic payment or make sure you have a very good accounting system where you don't miss payments. I recommend to everybody who's not in financial distress that all credit cards and all debt accounts are set to, especially at least debt accounts that are record, reported to a crediting credit agency, um, are, are set so at least the minimum payment is automatically paid uh, from a checking account uh, because you just if you start getting behind because you just didn't pay attention that was uh, pointless and you and you shouldn't do that. You should systematically ask for additional amounts of credit from the credit card companies, and uh, the way that you do that is as your income goes up, go ahead and ask for more credit, and uh, as your income goes up, uh, you. Um, you tell them about that, uh, and as you uh, you tell them about that, and as you're in, and that's going to be the biggest factor, and they'll increase your credit. The higher your available credit is, 
that'll help you on your credit utilization score. That'll raise your score, and that will make you qualified for more offers. The best thing to do is to take advantage of the 0% offers. And basically, if your credit score is decent and if your payment record is good, you can get from time to time 0% offers from companies. A couple of things that you should do as far as tactics and tools. Make sure that you check. If you are in, enrolled if you or if you've ever gone and enrolled in the opt-out uh, pre-screen process in the past, which is something that lots of people do uh, in order to limit credit card offers. When you're in this situation, you need to unenroll and make sure that you're not in the uh, opt-out space. You need to make sure that you're getting the offers, getting the special offers, and they'll send you the 0% balance transfer fees, um, uh, 0% balance transfer offers to you. And those are very helpful because if you can cut your debt from 18% interest rate to 0% with a small balance transfer fee, that can help you very much to, to keep things going forward. The second thing that you do is make sure that you are actively looking for opportunities for cards and things that will fit your personal uh, credit uh, scenario. So there are a couple of businesses. Um, sign up if you haven't done it on the Credit Karma website, C-R-E-D-I-T-K-A-R-M-A. And what they'll do is they'll They'll give you the tools on why, why, what is your credit score and why is it. But what Credit Karma does is because they have access to your credit score, they'll select some offers for you based upon your profile. And that'll give you a high percentage uh, possibility of getting approved when you go to apply for a card. Different credit card companies have different types of cards that they want to market to different types of debtors. So it's not as simple as saying, I want a Bank of America card. You need to know which Bank of America card is for me. Uh, in years past, we did a marketing when I was in the marketing and brand management um, kind of consulting company. Uh, we did an interesting study for a major, major credit card um, uh, provider. And it was so interesting to me to read all of the profiles that they had uh, on different types of debtors. And you are segmented and you're profiled and all of the offers are tailored right to you for the type of debtor that you are. So to enhance your ability to get a score or to get a card, uh, use a service like Credit Karma where they're going to tailor the offers that you should apply for based upon your personal profile. The standard thing, you should be able, as long as you're not late on all kinds of things, from time to time, you should be able to get a 0% balance offer, uh, transfer uh, offer. Usually, if, you're, if your um, credit scores are not great or if your utilization rate is very high, then you, you'll have to pay either a 3 or 5% balance transfer fee. Calculate those costs. If you can get your available credit higher and get your score better, then sometimes from time to time they'll give you a 0, zero where you have a 0% introductory offer and a $0, um, a $0 transfer fee. As you do this, and I'm talking about this over the course of months, as you do this, then uh, make sure that you uh, – as you do this, make sure that you don't close the old accounts. When you transfer the balance, just keep it there, even if they won't give you any more credit because that will help your utilization ratio. As you're going through this process, make sure that you're reporting your higher income as it goes up. So let's say that you sell a couple of houses and you say, well, actually my annual income has uh, – I could sell a house a month. So now I'm adding $48,000 to my annual income. Take that and add that to your job and report that plus your wife's income as the household income. Uh, when you're self-employed, the best thing is keep your job and your self-employment income and report the total income number to the credit card companies and they'll increase your balance based upon what your income is. Along the way, look for 
other offers. So look for an offer at a local credit union to move some of it from 18 or 19% to maybe six, seven, eight, nine percent Have you ever investigated getting a personal loan from a credit union or other source of funding? Uh, I, I, I did, but I, they were going to put me at 18%, so it didn't make it. Yeah, that doesn't benefit anything. For... doesn't benefit anything. Yeah. Okay. So look for other opportunities, uh, but, the, but the kind of the credit card game is your best, one of your best bets to get this. Now, should you move it to the home equity line of credit? That's the question. Um, maybe. So what's the total value of the house today? Total value of the house today is 535. And how much is your mortgage balance currently? 433. Why did you guys buy such an expensive house without making any money? Well, we were making we were making money at the time, um, but it was through a VA loan. Do you have any interest? So it was in, no much down. Do you have any interest in selling your house? Uh, I do, but my wife does not. Yeah, she very much wants to hold on to it. All right, so that's important. Um, well, uh, do you think that you could uh, have you investigated getting a HELOC on the house and moving it? I did. So I I looked into that um, and I was just kind of skeptical of whether or not we should do it because uh, so with the total amount that I could get through HELOC would be uh, 70000 at 6% interest rate. Um, so I, I had looked into that. I was just unsure if I should do that, whether or not we should reserve that as like, you know, if we have any medical emergencies that come up, you know, it, I, I talked it over with my wife and we were just we're kind of unsure about if we should utilize something like that for our credit card debt. Right. Do you have any other money? Do you have any investments, retirement accounts? Do you have any life insurance policies, savings, valuable assets? Uh, I've, I've got about two grand in an IRA right now. Yeah, there's no point in touching That's it. that. I hate adding more debt to a house and especially credit card debt. I hate it for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Number one, I don't like taking unsecured debt and moving it over into a secured debt position. If you have a credit card debt, uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, at the end of the day, <coughs> excuse me, if you don't pay, yeah, there'd be a lawsuit, but you don't lose your house. Now, I hate you're having such an expensive house, but if it's a, you know, if uh, I wouldn't tell my wife, honey, we've got to move out just because we have credit card debt. Like you can figure it out and it's time for you to get busy and sell some houses and, and pay it off. It sounds like a dream house, sounds like something that is important. And and that's not the type of thing to try to um, disrupt your marriage over a temporary short-term credit card um, scenario. I don't know how to tell you the answer clearly. Here are just the risks and the benefits of both. If you move it over onto a HELOC, then you put yourself in a situation where, yes, you save some interest, and that would be beneficial. But you also move the debt from an unsecured debt to a secured debt. So if you got behind on your payments or something happened, you are unable to um, – you're unable to um, – well, it, they run they run the risk of, of winding up in foreclosure because of it. Uh, I think what I might do is I might do half and half, and so I might move the money over. I might op- take out the HELOC, move okay. some of the balances over in order to free up my credit utilization ratio and get that down under. You know, ideally it's under thirty percent. But if you do that, do you know what the total um, credit limit is across all your cards currently? 
Uh, so if we're talking utilization, we're at like 95%. Okay. So if you can cut it down, you're not going to get any great offers at 95%. Uh, I would consider moving something like half of it over to a HELOC, dropping my rate utilization ratio below 50%, maybe below 40%, and that'll free up the 0% offers, and then uh, moving some more of it over to credit cards. Um, there is a case to be made just to move it all over into the HELOC, and um, the, the it, my concern is if you do that, you might lose the motiv motivation to pay off the debt. Um, and, and you might just start spending more money and that's not going to help you. If you can figure out how to have that psychological, um, the psychological motivation still intense to get rid of the debt, uh, and you can do that in the context of a home equity line, that's great. Uh, and that might be worth doing, but, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't like home equity line to credit, but, but it certainly there's a, if you can go from 18%, uh, to 6%, that's a massive um, savings. I mean, we're talking uh, interest on $45,000, 12% interest has $5,400. I think you got it. Yeah. So go ahead. So I, so my, my question, like I, not my question, but I guess the primary discussion that me and my wife were having was, whether or not it would be more beneficial. So for us right now, we're in the mindset of, hey, we need to work our butts off. Like we need to really like turn this around. So that's why we're both going to be working full-time jobs while we're building our businesses. Um, and th there was just a question of is, is the, that was kind of my question was, is the risk of doing the HELOC worth like the extra, let's say over two or three years ends up being like an extra 10 grand in interest. Like is the risk worth it? And that's kind of like why I was calling in today was whether or not it would be worth it to do that or if we just suck it up and, hey, we just we accept that this is a high interest rate and we just work our butts off to pay it down. So that's kind of where the discussion was for me. Um, well, I guess all I can uh, – it's a hard question for me to, to, to answer because um, the benefits – all I can do is just lay out kind of the benefits and the advantages for you. The benefit of moving it over onto home equity line of credit, the obvious benefit is you lower your interest rate dramatically. That is a dramatic savings. The second benefit to moving it to a home equity line of credit is you move what uh, today would be a mixture of business debt, deductible debt, and non-deductible debt over onto a home equity line, and you can deduct that along with your other mortgage interest. So that could help you slightly from a tax consideration. Uh, and you do have that that debt secured by a by an asset that eventually could be sold and and paid off. Um, that would those would be kind of the benefits of the home equity line of credit. And the interest savings is substantial. It's definitely substantial. the The fear that you have if you uh, move it over onto the home equity line of credit and then face some sort of emergency, that fear is justified. But you have to recognize that you still have access to the credit cards. So if you did move it over to the home equity line of credit, in essence, on the net, you're in the same position as you are keeping the balance on the credit cards and just having an empty home equity line of credit. Uh, you're in you're in basically the same the same place uh, because you, if you had an emergency, you could still, of course, use the credit cards again. And if you move the money over onto the home equity line of credit, it would help you to improve your credit score. Interest in favor of keeping it on the credit cards is the motivation um, to keep paying off the debt. I have almost never seen a family who was motivated to pay off credit cards 
when they moved it over to the home equity line of credit, was able to keep the same motivation. There's something about having credit card debt that helps you to stay motivated. And I don't like the idea of moving debt over onto something where they where it's secured by an asset. Uh, but uh, in your case, you're kind of stuck. So I would say it's either number one, how quickly can you get out of debt? Uh, you know, if you and she are both working full-time jobs and working side jobs, I and mean, you could have this thing gone and you could be completely debt-free in 12 months. Uh, if you work work hard and build up the business while you have your uh, your main job, you could be there in 12 months. And in 12 months, is the interest on the credit card going to be a huge deal? Probably not. You'll be, and you'll be able to get it down as you uh, pay off the balances some. So I think there's a strong argument made in favor of the home equity line of credit. I think I would be annoyed and I personally – this is my opinion um, – I personally don't want – unsecured debt moving to secured debt. It's more important to me to maintain a lower risk profile at the cost of a higher temporary interest for a few months than it is for me to save the interest. Uh, but uh, that was a 20-minute discussion to say, I don't know what you should do. <laughs> any, any... <laughs> no, but you really brought up some great points and uh, and that definitely gave me some stuff to think about that I, I had no clue about, um, especially with the credit utilization and, and you know just the idea of if the emergency does come up, we still have access to the credit cards, you know, which I, if we did do the HELOC, I'm not going to touch the credit cards um, because my, my whole goal is to be debt-free and, you know, ideally financially independent you know, by the time I'm 35. So. Okay. Yeah. If you've got that major motivation, then in that situation, I think um, I would shred the credit cards. I'd get rid of them completely. I wouldn't close them. But I'd, But if you're going to move to the HELOC uh, and still have them, shred them. If you have an emergency, you can get access to them in a few days. You can call the company and say, um, hey, we're going to, you know, we need the cards again. Uh, but make a pact with your wife that we're going to have this thing gone. Uh, otherwise, you just run the risk of, of going behind. But remember this, and I wanted to lead what I said earlier is important. When you're in a start in a business startup place, it's okay for you to wait. It's okay for you to say, I need to wait and I'll deal with this in 12 months uh, or six months and look at the business, make the business grow. You have the focus where you can do all of the above. You don't have to, but it's perfectly reasonable to say this is financing costs for the startup of my new business and I can work on this in six or 12 months. Many people delude themselves and six or 12 months turns into six or 12 years. And they still have a failing business and they didn't move quickly enough. But it's okay to to uh, to wait. All right. Good luck to you guys and uh, let me know how it goes. I hope it, uh, I hope it helps. I hate to go back and forth and maybe I didn't even answer it. Next. Oops. Wrong button. Matthew, hold on. I'm coming to you. Matthew, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, please? Hey, Joshua. Thanks for taking my call today. Um, so I guess this, this falls under the uh, career and income planning. So... Um, I was reading uh, Cal, Nor- Cal Newport's book, uh, So Good They Can't Ignore You. And, uh, and he states that people find fulfillment in a career s- sometimes by simply sticking with that career and over time uh, becoming, I don't know necessarily an expert, but much more comfortable with their career. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, a gr- that's an oversimplification of the, what's in the actual book, but that's kind of how it is broken down. Uh, do you believe that that has merit? Uh, if so, why? And if not, why not? And the reason I ask that is because it kind of runs into the the sunk cost fallacy. You you have to walk that that thin line between okay, do I just believe everything is gone and I'm making a clear decision today, or do, does each day I get a little bit better 
and this becomes a little bit more of a fulfilling career for me. If a career is fundamentally a bad fit, it's very unlikely that somebody's going to be able or willing to stick it out until they're good. So I think you have to start with there's got to be some basic fundamental fit. As long as there's some basic fundamental fit, and, he, and obviously here, uh, well, not obviously, I'm not here talking about somebody who's in survival mode, totally broke, um, just the bare minimum necessities of life. In that situation, you take whatever job is at hand uh, and you get yourself out of the ditch. We're talking about somebody who has opportunity and who's done well. I think when you have a basic level of fit, then that does make a lot of sense. And there are there is value in getting better at something. Uh, so I'll just use uh, the simplest example. Myself, uh, because listeners know who I am because I've shared so much of my life. I often, when I was younger, had this dream of having an internet business because I would sit at home and I would, um, you know, I've been pursuing this goal of having an independent online income that was location independent. I've been pursuing it for 15 years, uh, maybe more, 17 years perhaps. Uh, and so I'd often have this dream and this idea and this goal that life would just be perfect if I had a laptop and could sit in front of a laptop. Uh, when I got into the financial planning business, I quit after three years and I quit. Um, now, now, the first three years were brutal. After three years, I got better. But then I had an opportunity with a startup, a friend of mine who had created a startup uh, and it was in the technology space, had huge potential, huge potential returns, et cetera, and needed some help with online marketing. And I felt I had some skills to offer in that situation. I I quit my business, told my bosses and everybody that I was done. I didn't fully terminate my contract, but I was moving towards that. And for about a month or two, I quit and went to uh, work with this other person doing this technology startup. I quickly discovered that my dream, my juvenile dream, that life will just be great if I can sit in front of a laptop and make my income, wasn't the reality, that it wasn't just perfect and beautiful and fun just because I could sit in front of a laptop. I found it was really hard and it was work just like everything else was. Now, that particular venture didn't work out. Uh, I didn't have a good fit with the founder and I was able to, without even ever having ever told my clients, I was able to step back in and kind of pick up the, business, the reins of my financial planning business like I had before. The next three years, years three to six, were much more fun because of my mastery of certain fundamentals that had caused me problems in the first three years. But then ultimately, I did switch and come to radical personal finance. Now, one thing I am guaranteed proven to myself again is this is work. Having a so-called internet business and a media, you know, I jokingly call my media empire, it's work. It is hard work and it's not always fun. So I wholeheartedly stand with you and would uh, condemn the idea that work is going to just be fun. Uh, just because work is not fun doesn't mean work is not worth doing. And I don't know anybody who is effective and successful at their um, job or their business, their career, who doesn't have parts of it that they don't particularly love doing that aren't particularly fun, but that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. So I do agree, as, but as long as there's a basic fit uh, with the career, 
there are some careers and some people working in them that just simply are not fundamentally a fit. And it's a waste of time to keep pursuing them for year after year after year when a small, simple transition to something else would open up uh, the horizons of opportunity and success far more freely. Got it. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I was just curious of how those two fit because there's so many jobs and careers that would be quite fulfilling to people, but are but may not check the whole passion box. Um, and and I was just curious of of kind of and I've actually noticed that in in my own uh, careers that I've I've noticed that people who have been around uh, for 15 years really enjoy what they do. Although if you ask them 10 years ago, if they would find quote unquote passion in that job or in that field, they would probably answer no. But after the time had passed, um, they had found fulfillment in what they were doing. I do think that word, I wholeheartedly agree with Cal Newport in this. I think the word passion is very much oversold and misunderstood by many people. Uh, people often conflate the word passion with fun, and I think that's a major mistake. Uh, and and passion, I think, is appropriate. I have a deep passion for what I do, but it's not expressed in the same way that, oh, this is fun. I'm doing what I like to do for fun. I've experienced that any time I've ever taken what I like to do for fun and turned it into work, it's quickly lost its fun for me. That's just been my experience and my observation of other people as well. Uh, I've known professional athletes. Um, I've known people who are engaged in uh, sports work, uh, things that are fun for people, again, quickly be loses its its um, its appeal when it's turned into work. Uh, to me, passion is much more a matter of impact. So I'm passionate about the work that I do because I want to see a difference made in the world. And I can do that in many different ways. It's no different. What I'm doing now uh, is fully integrated with the change that I want to see in the world. And that's the, it's that passion for change, that passion for truth, that passion for the things that for lobbying and advocating and teaching the ideas and fundamental principles and concepts that I believe are helpful that keeps me going through uh, the more difficult uh, the more difficult times. It's not just a fun passion for talking on a microphone. Um, I could do this in a dozen different ways, but it is a deep passion. It's just not uh, a fun. So good question. All right, uh, I have got two other callers here. Let's go first with four one five caller from California. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance. Go ahead and tell us who you are and ask your question, please. Four one five area code from San Francisco, California. Welcome to the show. All right, dead air, just like on the radio. Next, we'll go to Washington two hundred two number. Welcome to the show. Introduce yourself, please, and let me know your question. Yes, Joshua. My name is John. Thank you for taking the call. I am a active duty officer in the Navy, and I have been running some calculations for myself about the military survivor benefit plan. And I wanted to tell you what I have seen so far. And as my virtual financial advisor, <laughs> I wanted to ask some feedback as to whether or not there's something that I'm missing. Okay, go ahead. So 
the military survivor benefit plan, in short, is basically buying into an annuity for my spouse to continue to receive a benefit uh, in the event that I were to pass away. So the, my spouse would be entitled to 55% of my retirement pay, and that would include inflation adjustments. But the cost to buy into that program is 6.5% each month for 30 years. So that 6.5% does have the benefit of being pre-taxed. The alternative sometimes discussed is the idea of a term life insurance. But as I've considered that, I know one of the disadvantages there is there's nothing at the end of the term. And although we could go through financial planning and talk about how other investments may grow, I feel like I would be missing an opportunity to fully care for my spouse or my wife in terms of having something guaranteed rather than... um, relying on some other investment growth. Mm -hmm. So that has led me to look more closely at whole life insurance, which the disadvantage there is it would be relatively costly, but I'm considering the idea of a 10-year paid-up policy, which means I could cover that within my current monthly budget, pay it off over the next 10 years with the added benefit of getting that expense ended and not carrying that expense into retirement. I see the other benefits of the whole life insurance being uh, an opportunity if my wife were to die prematurely relative to me, there would still be something there in my estate um, compared to nothing buying into this survivor benefit as an effective annuity. So roughly speaking, just doing some ballpark estimates, these... 10-year whole life insurance, and I'm notionally looking at something like a $600,000 policy, would be paying in about $120,000 from year 2017 to year 2027. Compared to the military survivor benefit with that 6.5% being roughly, and just estimating a potential retirement in 2027, roughly being about $200, just making some rough assumptions about inflation from 2027 to 2057. So I think like any other insurance decision, this is really coming down to a risk decision. Um, But I see some benefits to the military's survivor benefit, in particular if I were to be hit by a bus early or if inflation were to run rampant. Um, but I'm, that's the summary I have, and I'm just wanting to, again, see if I'm missing something. Have you reviewed the, 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 the quotes that you've received and the policy illustrations on a whole life policy, have those been reviewed in consultation with uh, you know, a professional agent or those things that you pulled uh, just online on your own research? I've done some quotes with a life insurance company that I'm familiar with because I have term life policies with them. Okay. So I do not have any whole life policy with them, but I haven't gone into detailed discussions with an agent. Given your health, is there any reason to expect that you would not be granted uh, a life insurance policy with the best health underwriting at the best health classification? No. How old I are think you currently? I would be. 
I am 38. And tell me uh, your wife, her age, please. She's just a year older than me. And is her health also in good condition? Is she also in in good health? Her health is not as good as mine. She has some some chronic uh, concerns, though um, not specifically related to anything that should affect longevity. Okay. Her family history and your family history, are your parents alive? If so, how old are they? Or if not, at what age did they die? They are all alive in their 60s. With your grandparents, did they were they long-lived? Relatively speaking. So just kind of clarify, uh, this is an important area of consideration because we're basically trying to make some guesses here. And if you guess right or wrong, you may come out substantially ahead or uh, or not depending on what happens. If you live and are very long-lived, then uh, and if you can get get the benefit of your uh, military pension uh, for a long period of time at a higher rate, that's going to be very much in your favor. Uh, If your wife dies before you or dies at a younger age, then it would be much better for you to choose the option that gives you more money more money. Uh, so that's a big deal. Uh, this entire plan is predicated upon the fact that you could even get insurance. Uh, and that, so that's why I ask the health questions. Many people who start to do these calculations and think this through uh, quickly find out, well, I can't even get insurance. And if you can't get insurance, the best thing to go is go with these benefits like the military um, survivor benefit plan. And then also age makes a big difference. Uh, the problem with life insurance is it needs to be really to work out well. It really needs to be purchased at a younger age um, for short-term uh, needs like this. So 38 is an entirely reasonable age to to do this. The first thing to do is to get as accurate numbers as possible. Uh, so uh, the uh, the company that you did uh, this with, was it USAA? Do you have term insurance with them? And you talked to them about a whole life policy? What company was it? It is actually Navy Mutual Aid Association. Okay, so it's good to uh, it's good to talk with them, uh, uh, whether it's Navy Mutual Aid, etc. I probably would be very slow to go with for whole life insurance. I'd be very slow to talk too long with uh, a company that doesn't specialize in whole life insurance. And the four big guns in the whole life insurance policy are the big mutual life insurance companies. Um, Northwestern Mutual, New York Life, Mass Mutual, and Guardian are the leaders in that space. That's what they do. And I would review this with a with an agent from uh, one or a couple of those companies, uh, depending on which company we're talking about. They may or may not have access to the other company's policies, but they're all going to be very similar in uh, in terms of their quality. And the reason that's important is if you work with one of those companies, you're more likely to get somebody who is experienced in whole life insurance and who can run some numbers because with this, a lot of it is going to depend on the performance of the actual policy. A $600,000 policy that stays $600,000 compared to the benefit of a military pension uh, of the military benefit is probably not going to be all that great. A $600,000 policy that makes up 
the difference for the 6.5% loss and that's run with a good quality mutual company where you're going to get ongoing dividends as once the policy is mature, it's going to continue growing. Uh, uh, the cash values will be there. The death benefit will be there. That approach will make a big difference. And so this has to be carefully calculated based upon somebody who knows and who can use a quality conservative policy that is going to be there. It's very important that you recognize that in terms of what you're considering giving up, the military uh, survivor benefit pension plan, that is a gold-plated option. That is a powerful financial planning tool. It is, number one, it's guaranteed to you. There's no underwriting. You just have to sign up for it. Number two, it's backed directly by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. Uh, we're not talking about an insurance company uh, that is may or may not go under, may or may not pay out. We're talking about the, the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, which is backed by all of their taxing authority, uh, that's backed by military uh, uh, budget allocation, which nobody right now is lobbying to take money away from the military. Uh, and so especially for veterans and, and all of this stuff, like you don't get a stronger positioning power than what you're talking about. Military benefit pension plans, that is gold in our current political space. And because of the cost of living adjustment rider, that is one of the most valuable potential assets that you can have. When you start calculating that inflation uh, benefit and when it, it, it's – that's so, so powerful and it makes a huge difference to the value of it. So you have to approach this very seriously and start with the fact of this thing is a diamond in my financial planning tool belt. I may be able to get a slightly better diamond but I need to be very suspicious you don't just trot out to the local financial person and say, hey, you know, I'm interested in buying a, a 10-year paid-up whole life insurance policy. What you got? And buy with some B-rated company that, or a policy that may self-destruct because it was poorly designed and poorly funded, et cetera. You need to replace gold with gold uh, if you're going to consider something like this for your family. And so I would uh, – I would, if I woke up in your shoes, I would exclusively start in one of those situations and I would try to work with a gold-plated agent. Uh, or somebody that can work with you with those. Um, they're not as good as the gov- as the full faith and credit of the government, um, but there may be an opportunity to enhance it, and you'll only know by calculating it. My standard advice on how to find uh, an experienced life insurance agent in uh, a situation like yours is this. If you don't have somebody or don't have a connection, find in phone book, local search directory, et cetera, one of the offices for those, those four companies. And you should start with a couple. Um, every one of them has a reason why they think they're better than another, but start with those offices. Call the local office, speak to the uh, secretary who answers the phone, tell them you want to speak with the managing director or managing partner of the office. Uh, and just tell them, I'm interested in getting some insurance quotes, but I'd like to talk to the managing director or managing partner. Um, they may or may not put you through, so tell the information to the secretary. You don't need to talk to the managing director or managing partner, but tell them, I'm shopping for a life insurance policy as a possible pension replacement option, and I need to get some quotes and talk with somebody knowledgeable. Who in your office would you recommend I talk to? And that way, they'll steer you to somebody who's uh, more experienced, senior um, 
agent who will should hopefully have the technical competence to actually run an accurate calculation for you, or they may just do it themselves. Uh, you don't need to talk to the managing director. The secretary can can tell you who that person is and put them in touch with you. But at least by going through the managing director, you don't run the risk of just facing whoever's new off the street. To the actual um, question of it, if you don't buy the spousal benefit option and you die early, it's my is my understanding accurate that your wife would get nothing from your pension? That is correct. That has been um, the thing that I have come to loathe about some of the pension plans. Um, and I uh, and because of that, I, I have actually um, the year before um, the year before I came and um, started radical personal finance, I went through this analysis with a client of mine who was a school teacher and they had the gold plated um, the gold plated uh, uh, pension, you know, the best that the, that the, the government school system had to offer. And, uh, but there was no survivor benefit. And, um, we worked through the whole analysis. Uh, we ran the numbers on the policies and we did move into the situation of, of replacing that pension, um, with, uh, uh, a life insurance policy and a um, it was a different planning scenario, but and the major reason we did it was because they were willing to bet on long life and they wanted both. They wanted the insurance and it. Um, I'm concerned about only six hundred thousand uh, dollars because your pension uh, would have a present value. I would I would assume far in excess of $600,000. So just my gut is if you're running your numbers based upon what you got from that one quote, uh, my gut is that you're better off skipping the life insurance policy and keeping the military benefits. Um, but you may be able to get a better policy. You may be able to get a better designed policy, a policy that's built for death benefit and can run at a lower premium, but is still very, very safe. Uh, and you may be able to do it, uh, uh, and come out ahead, especially if you're confident about uh, about your health. Uh, but I would cover it in the short term. I would definitely, uh, if you're going to do that, you definitely need to make up much more than $600,000 of whole life in term. You're going to need a lot more term to protect yourself over the next decade as you move towards that couple of decades. Uh, and so you're going to need uh, you're going to need a, a, a delicate plan that's well designed if you do want to do better. In general, my advice is, um, in general, my advice is. Take the take the the government benefit because it's so strong and it does provide that rock solid protection uh, for your wife, which is crucial. Uh, but y- y- the situation that you're describing piques my interest in that it's worth further calculation. Uh, but you need a better a better built policy to get you there, and you need to to do some more careful calculation on what you'd be giving up of the present value of the benefit for her. Helpful. Okay. Uh, that answer your question enough to get you started. Yes, it does. <laughs> you do have uh, – you are the right type of candidate for whom this plan can potentially work for. Um, in general, these plans don't work for most people. People who want to buy a life insurance policy to replace something, it usually doesn't work. Uh, 
in my in my experience. It doesn't work because people are usually buying them too old and they're too sick, and they can't get policies at good ratings. If you if you were issued a standard or a rated policy, then the whole plan goes out the window, and you absolutely should not go with it. But if you could get a uh, a preferred policy. Uh, with a well-run company, it is possible that this could come out uh, could come out better, and you could get to enjoy the benefit of a pension for your entire lifetime, uh, and protect your wife um, financially, and uh, have the possibility of leaving a much larger estate. Uh, it is one of the reasons why I do love it when uh, people get. Uh, life insurance at a young age with good companies uh, because this opens up opportunities to them that that many of their peers uh, won't have. Anything else I can answer for you before uh, before we go? Good enough? Yes, sir. Thank you, Joshua. I hope that's enough of a, a starting point to uh, talk about the calculations that need to be done. The math is too complex uh, to do on on the show, what you have, what you need to do uh, to do the analysis, any of you who are interested in the topic, is calculate the exact cost of that benefit and the exact potential benefit. So you need to do a forward calculation on the inflation uh, of what your likely salary is at the time of retirement, uh, inflate that throughout the retirement years, and bring it back to uh, the present value of today and the present value of retirement, and then bring it back and figure out what the cost is, what you'd be giving up in terms of a present value. Then you look at the life insurance policy and you consider um, the options. You know, one thing I've neglected to do is I'm not sure that 10-year paid up is the right solution either. Uh, It's not necessary to have, in a situation like that, it's not necessarily necessary to have a quick pay policy, which is what... uh, uh, which is what the caller was talking about, a policy that you pay premiums into for 10 years. If you have enough term insurance in a situation like that to cover the, uh, and for a 38-year-old, there's no reason why you can't cover the next 30 years with term insurance. Let's say that he's planning to retire in 10 years. You can buy a flat 30-year term policy that covers you for the first 20 years. And term insurance is the cheapest way to cover those first few decades. Uh, we're just talking about what if he dies at 78? Well, you're not going to be buying an owning term insurance at 78. So there's got to be a permanent policy there. But if you have a higher pension payout, um, there's not necessarily any reason to give up uh, um, the next 10 years of income uh, to have a 10-year paid-up policy. Uh, You could, uh, as long as the premium is something that's reasonable on a retirement income, you could be in a situation where uh, you can have a policy that you pay for longer. That is only going to make sense to you, uh, life insurance and financial planning nerds. Um, (laughs) That was way outside of what I can do on a podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for calling in. Two things as we go. If you'd like to join a future call-in show, make sure that you uh, sign up and support the show at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Number two, remember that at the the moment, I still have registration open for the beta version of the Radical Personal Finance Guide to Career and Income Planning. At the moment, I have, as I record this on Friday, August 11th, I have 27 seats left. When those 27 seats are sold, I will be closing registration. Or if we get all the way till next week, and I don't expect this to, I think we'll sell out before then. But if we get all the way to next week on August 20, then I will close registration. Uh, details of that can be found at radicalpersonalfinance.com slash career, radicalpersonalfinance.com slash career. Special bonus of uh, today's Q&A call. After um, I finished the music, I realized I hadn't answered John's question well enough. So John, um, I want to explain um, 
a little bit more to you and make sure you get this right uh, because it's too big. You don't want to get it wrong if you do it. So number one, the major cost that you've got, the major thing, if you're going to plan for this for your wife, you've if you retired, give me a number. How much, if you retired uh, at 48, um, what do you guess would be your initial beginning pension benefit from the military at that point? Estimated to be 80000 for me. But as I mentioned, the survivor benefit premium, if I were hit by a bus on that first day, it would only be forty five for my wife. Okay. So $80,000 of annual income in that scenario is a huge pension that you have got to protect for. That's $80,000 of gold-plated income. So we're talking three to $5 million of term life insurance um, that you need to have in place. And so I know you already have some uh, term life insurance, but let's just pretend that you have none so I can get it clearly uh, the point across. And then you uh, uh, pretend you have none. And then um, you go talk to an insurance agent and figure out how this fits with what you already have and quotes and all of that. But um, if I were working with you, what I would do, if I woke up in your shoes, I would start with um, term life insurance. And basically, uh, perhaps in your situation, 38, uh, I would do something akin to almost a stair-step uh, level of pl- uh, plan. And so for, for the sake of clarity, you could do this with a 10-year term, uh, a, a 20-year term, and a 30-year term policy. Uh, so let's say you bought a million dollars of 10-year of, of, of term, 20-year term, and 30-year term. So what that covers is that if you die in the next 10 years, your wife gets $3 million from the term. If you die in the following decade, she gets $2 million. If she dies in, If you die in the third decade, she gets a million. Probably should be a little bit more than that. Probably should be longer. You do the math because uh, you've got to replace that for her. And the cheapest way to do that at this age and at this stage is going to be with term life insurance. Now, you should supplement that with a permanent life insurance policy. And I don't see any benefit to your having that permanent life insurance policy paid up in 10 years because if you, if when you retire, you're going to have a stable income. So you can pay life insurance premiums on an ongoing basis and you may get more bang for your buck if you go ahead and uh, plan in the ability of uh, just a, a low ordinary life uh, payment where you just pay a steady premium going forward for the for the rest of your life, you may get more bang for the buck if you set that up now and you'll be able to buy more death benefit, more permanent death benefit that lasts forever. And that covers during the last, say, 20, 30, 40 years of your life, depending on how the numbers wind up working. And so for any listener who got confused by all this, the major benefit is if John has life insurance in place and he takes the option of the military pension for only him, he gets the benefit of having a much higher pension payment from the day he retires until the day he dies. And if he lives for a long time, he could potentially get a ton of money from the pension. And if he dies at an old age, he dies having a life insurance policy that gets passed on to his heirs. Because he's covered with life insurance during the interim, he can protect his wife if he dies early and she is still financially squared away, but and at least she's protected. So he's taking a potentially taking a gamble to have a much higher benefit uh, and to leave behind that estate in terms of life insurance policy for his children. So that's the reason to do it. And it might, if he does it right, it can come out substantially ahead of 
of just having the lower retirement income for both of them and a reduced income for his wife. So that's how I would structure it, John, uh, conceptually. Make sense? Okay. Relative to what you mentioned about the three to five million, can you just educate me on the role of thumb you're using? So as I mentioned, if, if something were to happen to me, then my wife starting out would be estimated roughly 45K. How would you value that? Okay. So 45, Again, yeah. Life insurance. Yeah. So probably three to 5 million may be a little bit excessive uh, if we're just going to try to replace $45,000. So if we just use, uh, let's just use the 4% rule, $45,000 per year of income uh, times 25 is $1.1 million of, of, um, uh, of, uh, total uh, present value that would need to produce that. That's yep. if the money were, were invested in stocks, very risky, very fluctuation. And if we're using as a standard, that 4% rule that we just use as quick rule of thumb math on something like a financial podcast. So we're at a million dollars. Now, the problem is this, you don't have a mutual fund portfolio that you may be able to pull from during the course of your wife's lifetime. You have a gold-plated annuity that would pay your wife $45,000 a year backed by the full faith and credit of the government and uh, full faith and credit of the U.S. government with an inflation rider for life. And so if you retired at 48 and were dead at 49, that's potentially 50 to 70 years of lifetime expectancy for your wife uh, if she lived to you know 90, 100, 110, somewhere in that range. That's a huge, huge asset. So, um, right. so I automatically kind of just mentally doubled uh, what a four percent rule is to give, a, and this is totally non-scientific, just to kind of get the sense of the fact that this thing is gold, um, a guaranteed pension by the government with inflation riders. This is gold. This is the best benefit you could possibly get. So, in order to make up the difference of risk, you need to have more money. So, probably if you went and you asked, um, you know, uh, a New York Life, a Northwestern Mutual, a Mass Mutual, one of these companies, you said. Tell me how much I need to buy to buy a guaranteed annuity with inflation adjustment for my wife. My gut would be right now for a 48-year-old uh, when, you, when you retire, 48-year-old um, male, my gut would – or for your wife, under her eight life expectancy, my gut would be that they would charge you a lump sum amount of – I'll give you my number, $2,625,000. Now you email me later and tell me if I'm right. <laughs> but we're talking a huge amount of money. So that's where I got, you know, that's where I jumped right to $3 million. I understand. That's helpful. Okay. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to replace like with like. And this is what I don't like, what angers me about not so great life insurance agents. Um, you can't play around with great assets and replace them with bad assets just to scrape a commission. So you got to remember, John, your military pension is a diamond. Doesn't mean you can't get a better diamond or possibly get a better deal or double dip. Like You really can. I think you can. Uh, and if I were in your shoes, I probably would. But it does mean you need to be really conservative with everything that you do and make sure that you have a, a, a bulletproof plan. That's all. That's my major point. Okay. Let me know how it goes. I hope that was helpful. You you ask the ask the agent to run that quote and tell me if my my <laughs> a forty eight year old female um, with um, you know good health life expectancy guaranteed lifetime single life income of forty five thousand dollars per year with an inflation option. Um, 
I bet you it's north of uh, to buy it. Lump sum would be I bet you two and a half million. We'll see. Tell me what it, what it is when you have them run that annuity numbers at today's interest rates. All right. Have a great day, John. This show is part of the Radical Life Media Network of podcasts and resources. Find out more at RadicalLifeMedia.com.